Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Also bring you greetings from Calvary Lutheran, who I think is well of you there. I'll be saying a prayer for you this morning as we worship together. One of the overriding themes in the scriptures is the idea that God wants to live with us. We see this in the opening chapter when an orchard, a garden was created so God could live with his creation. Sin ruined that. And in the period when sin has kept us from God and it's difficult for us to live with him, there were other images of this, the tabernacle, the temple, the ark. This sort of reminded the people that, really, I made you so I could live with you. And in the final chapters of Revelation at the end of the Bible, it all ends when we again live with God as he made us to live. This theme shows up all over the scriptures. Today I'd like to look at the Old Testament passage in Isaiah where he reflects upon this idea that God wants to live with us. Isaiah lived about 700 years before Christ. He lived in Jerusalem. He was a very prominent figure in his day. He was an advisor to kings, a statesman. He was a teacher. He was, of course, a prophet. He was a poet and songwriter. And most of all, he was a man of God. I hope that most of us realize the most important thing somebody could say about us is that we are a man of God or a woman of God. He was that type of person. So he has this poem here, and it's a poem where he puts together word pictures that were familiar to the people of Jerusalem in that time and resonate with us too. The first picture is of a mountain. The second one is of God's river. The third is of God's school. And the fourth image is God's courtroom. Okay, God's mountain, river, school, and courtroom. Puts a lot into five verses. So let's begin. It says, in the latter days... That this shall come to pass. Now, the latter days is kind of a phrase, very common, that means any culmination of the purposes of God. It doesn't have to be the last days, but when God is working on something and it comes into fruition and is clear to us, that's the latter days. So what is he saying? He's saying that in the culmination of God's purposes, there's going to be a situation where we're living with him in the way he's going to describe here. And he says, in the latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and lifted up above the hills. Now, you know, the mountain of God to the Israelite was the mountain that Jerusalem sat on with the temple. It was Mount Zion, 2,500 feet high. That's not super high. Those of you who have been there recognize this one of several, about seven other hills, all about the same. 
It doesn't stand out at all. And yet he sees the day when God will reestablish it as the highest, the greatest of mountains above all the hills. I did some math. I found out that Mount Zion, we take, take 12 stacked on top of each other of Mount Zion's to come up to the height of Mount Everest. So it's not that big. It's, it's not anywhere near there. But what makes it so prominent is that there is a house there where God will live. When God is described in spatial terms, he sometimes describes as high, which means that he is able to see all and he knows all because he's above everything. And because of that, he has authority over all. All the great fortresses were on the highest mountains. He has power. And he has majesty. Because when you look up, you're just sort of struck by this one high on the mountain. So this mountain will be there. And it's kind of interesting. It's a good image for their day that doesn't resonate with us. But the competing nations... Each had their man-made mountains. If you were in Egypt, you'd find the pyramids. If you went to Babylon or Syria, they built what were called ziggurats, mighty buildings, all sort of the Tower of Babels that were replicated all over the place. The idea of the tower that was man-made was that you wanted to please your God, and so what you would do is once a year, the priest would trudge up the many, many, many steps to these tall, tall brick edifices, carrying a sacrifice, a little meal, and he'd go to this little room up there. It was sort of a hotel room. And they'd put out the food for the god, and they'd make everything cozy with a nice bed and everything, and then they'd leave and they'd pray to God to come for just one day and enjoyed their hospitality. And they figured if they treated him right for that single day, that sure he'd depart, but first he'd leave a blessing for the rains, for abundance, for crops, for victory over their enemies. Israel found this hilarious. The Psalms and the Prophets are full of mockery of this pathetic little god that shows up and for a day lives in a little room and then disappears. Our God are above the heavens and the earth. So it's a good image because this mountain and this house are huge and far better than any idol. And this is the house of God. So it's kind of an image of God taking a permanent residence not staying for the day. It moves on. So we have the house of God on this mountain. Uh, and then the next image is the image of the river of God. It says, All the nations shall flow to this mountain, and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up the, to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob. Now there's something peculiar here. I live on a mountain, sort of, about 1,200 feet. 
And when you go to town, you always see Scappoose Creek. One thing I've never noticed is Scappoose Creek flowing uphill. That seems odd, doesn't it? Have you seen that? Creeks to flow uphill? No, I haven't either. That's because they don't. That's supposed to be impossible. And yet here, this river of people are flowing up the hill. It's an impossible, unexpected, who could imagine this? That the peoples would come flowing up to the house of God. Which is more impossible? The water can flow uphill? Or that the enemies of the God of Israel that despised him, that wanted to destroy him, that mocked him, that thought he was a great fool, that those would turn around and decide instead to say, let's go to the house of God. Wow. Let's go there to the house of the God of Jacob. So here's this nation flowing up. It's impossible to think. Think of the people that look like they're totally never going to repent and come to Christ. You just give up. Some of you have kids that you probably feel that way about. Don't give up. Don't give up. In the latter days, there will be a time. So we go from the image of the river now to the school, because these people are all coming up. And what do they want to do when they get there? Well, it says they are continuing to speak that we... Uh, Let's go up to the mountain that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. This is the school of God. There are three elements here to the school. There's a teacher and there's a curriculum and there's an outcome. In other words, the students that are affected by the teaching. Who is the teacher? Well, it says here that the teacher is God himself. Right now, you have a lot of human teachers maybe in your life. How would it be if God was your teacher tutoring you? Earlier this week, uh, I sent a note to Pastor Don. I had a question or two about coming here, a couple of things, and I put them on a list. And then a few things that I wanted to just affirm that I thought I knew times and stuff. And so I sent the email to him, and I got an email back. And I love this email. He sent it at night. It was his day off, so I was glad to get anything. He said this, Hi, Phil. I'll call you tomorrow with all the answers. And I had been looking, kind of investigating this particular uh, prophecy, and it struck me when he said that. And I talked to my wife about this. I said, wouldn't it be something if that phone rang today, and it was God, and he was calling to give us all the answers? What if he said, I'll call you tomorrow? Stay near your phone. I'm going to give you all the answers. Because that's what Isaiah says is going to happen. I'd stay up all night by the phone. Pen and pencil and pad, ready to take notes. We should be so eager. 
And the, the teaching of God, this is an interesting word in the Hebrew, it isn't just teaching, it's training. You know kind of the difference? Training is when you, the word actually means to cause to learn. You don't just give them knowledge, you work them out. So example, if you are going to bowl for the first time, and you were uh, told, well, you pick up that ball and you knock down those pins, okay? But then you're not sure how to hold it, or you're not sure... Where do I get the ball? There's a lot of things. Somebody has to take you around, demonstrate for you, show you how it works, correct your mistakes. God wants to build in us some faith muscles and some muscle memory with the faith muscles. That's why over and over we repent, we believe, and we repeat. Because we are being trained in holiness, in godliness. That's a theme of the New Testament that Paul loves. He sees us through. He doesn't just dump a lot of information on. What's the curriculum? Well, he said the curriculum is the law and the word. The law is that old word Torah, which is a much richer word than simply law. The law in the Bible has six or seven different kind of meanings. And, uh, but here it means the instruction of God. So the instruction and the word of the Lord is going to go forth. I like that. It's like God sees from a distance, here's some people coming up the hill, send out the, send out the word. Get, you know, march out there. Go to them. God wants to make himself known. He pours out his word. He pours out his instruction. What's the outcome? Well, the people there are smart enough to say that he may teach us his ways and that we can walk in his ways. That we actually do what we're told. That we actually benefit by doing what we were made to do and being what we were made to be. Effective teaching is always measured not by how eloquent the teacher, but how changed the student is, right? I don't know how many times people have sat in a sermon I've given, and I can tell, mm-hmm, unaffected. Not my best effort. Other times they'll come and tell me how they were greatly affected about something I didn't even say, which I'm glad to take credit for. But God wants to make sure that we are changed. I love this quote by a Christian philosopher, teacher, person named Dallas Willard talking about faith. I thought this was really good. He says, you know, we don't believe something by merely saying that we believe it. You recite the creed. It doesn't mean you believe it. Or even when we believe that we believe it. (laughs) No, we believe something when we act as if it were true. 
You can live the opposite of what you profess to believe, but you cannot live opposite of what you actually believe. God wants to embed his word in us so that we genuinely live it out in our actions. How does this word go forth today? I was thinking about that because there's a, uh, an element of later and also now in this prophecy. And I was thinking about all the ways that the Bible describes the word of the Lord coming to us. I, I kind of got five. There may be more. The Bible is very clear that the word of God comes through us through his creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. And day after day, the stars utter his words. So we can learn something of God from creation. A second way is through an informed conscience. I say informed conscience because not every conscience is worth listening to including mine some days. Our conscience is just a mechanism that tells us to do what you believe. But it doesn't, like, download it to tell you to do the right thing, just to do the thing you already believe. And so, the Bible speaks of a conscience that's informed, that's cleansed, that's not self-deceiving. That is a way to bring the word of God into my life. Okay, another one. This is maybe the one that you were most familiar with. The word of the Lord comes today through other Christians. Most of you who believe in Christ today do so because at some point in your life, there was a person that you respected. And that person spoke and lived Christ, and gave you cause by their integrity to believe the truth that that life showed out, and the words that showed out. It could have been a parent, could have been a friend, could have been a TV preacher. We are the body of Christ, and the word of God comes through us when we live as such. The other thing, of course, is Christ himself, who is called the living word. For believers, he resides in us. We learn of Christ when we read about his words. And we know his presence when we recognize his presence in the communion. And, of course, the last thing is the obvious, the scriptures themselves, right? My word is a lamp to my feet and a light into my path. So all those things are ways that we can open ourselves to the word of God so that we can be changed. That's God coming down from the mountain. How purposefully, how eagerly are you looking for, watching for, listening for that word that comes to you every moment of your life? We go lastly to the courtroom of God. Now, there are lots of ways that God is described as um, convening court. Here, he is judging the nations. He shall judge between the nations. Who, remember, these are the people coming up the mountain that have been the prior foreigners, the nations who 
didn't want anything to do with God and didn't like Israel. And in fact, in Isaiah's day, were threatening to kill everybody. So he shall judge between the nations and they shall decide, he shall decide disputes. In other words, he'll make the past right, genuinely, for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. It's because they're learning the word instead. They're learning peace. The last verse is a real humble, simple appeal. Isaiah speaks to his own people, and he says, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. God is teaching now. We can learn now. We can be changed now. We can know his blessing now. Let's go to the mountain. Listen to the word. Real briefly, the epistle reading, I put this one in here because it's sort of a sequel to Isaiah's mountain. This is again the mountain picture, but this time it's the heavenly mountain. It's kind of a more final picture of life after death for believers, life in glory with God where he tells the Christians who are kind of at the base of the mountain looking up at it, and they know that's their destiny, and he tells them, oh, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels, to the assembly of the firstborn, to God, to the judge, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, and to the... He goes on and on, one sentence. It's a big Eiffel. It's joyful, isn't it? Everything coming together. Angelics, forces, humans, God himself. We can't look at all of it, but one phrase really struck me. It talks about God as the judge of all, and then it mentions the spirits of the righteous made perfect. I'm not sure what a perfect spirit is, but I kind of want to be one. And so I was thinking this through, and I was thinking, how did they get to be perfect? Think of a day when maybe the moment of your death, when you were standing alone before the God who is the judge of all who is the all-knowing God, who has the all-seeing eye. He knows everything about us, every affliction we dealt with, every wasted opportunity we didn't take advantage of. He knows our sins. He knows the things that we didn't do so badly. He knows it all. And we stand there, and he looks at us. There's no argument to what he has to say. His judgment will be perfect. And he looks at Phil. And he says, 
you are perfect. You're perfect. Everything I imagined that you could possibly be, you're there. You're welcome into my kingdom. All the inhabitants of heaven have received that pronouncement. What a day that'll be. What a glory that is. We're forgiven. We're changed by the blood of Christ, the mediator of Christ. Perfect. Life is messy. But we recognize that even in our messy lives, that God is with us, lives with us, having a down payment where we're going. Eventually, he's going to bring us home in the latter days. We can't believe, we can hardly anticipate, because it's so good. (laughs) But for now, what is God trying to teach you today? Lord, may your word indeed be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Amen.